You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2024. The United States returns the Houthis to the same list as Hamas and Hezbollah, the EU's exasperation with persistent problem child Hungary, and what is the least a government minister should know about their portfolio. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers will discuss today's big stories and we'll have the latest from our team at the World Economic Forum in Davos, plus our On This Day historical feature. We'll recall one of the odder presidential addresses in American history. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by James Rogers, Associate Professor of International Journalism at City University of London and by Tessa Shishkovitz, journalist and author and a UK correspondent for Falter magazine. Hello to you both. Hello, good evening. I I feel I should caution both guests and listeners that it is less than 24 hours since I stepped off a plane from Melbourne. So if I do fall abruptly asleep at any point during proceedings, please try not to take it personally. No, no, no. just, I mean, you know what the topics are. Just carry on with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take over. The Austrian and the English will do a swift takeover. Well, exactly. Uh, and certainly where the English are concerned, James, it wouldn't be the first time. But you but you, 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 have been recently ventured to Belgrade. Yes, I have. I was there last month. It's the first time I've been, actually. I mean, I've travelled a lot in different parts of Europe, but that was a real gap in my travels, actually, which um, I find I've increasingly been able to fill with... Um, Going to watch football, which is what I did on this occasion. I went to watch a Champions League game there, but also took the opportunity to see some museums and some anti-NATO graffiti. Of course, uh, the city was bombed by NATO in 1999 Indeed. during the Kosovo War. Um, uh, but it was a really interesting uh, a really interesting visit, actually. A nice combination of culture, football and history. Uh, I do still have quite a lot of the anti-NATO merch I purchased in Belgrade circa 2000, a, a matter of months after that when I was visiting in the weird twilight of the Milosevic years. Um, I went to see Partizan Belgrade at home during that visit. That's not who you went to see, though. I went to see Red Star, and but there were reminders of those years because uh, on a wall across from the stadium uh, was a graffito which said Ratko Mladic, Serbian hero, a reference to the war criminal, of course. And uh, I can speak Russian, so I can read a bit of Serbian and understand enough. But just in case you didn't get the message, it was also written in English. It, well, when I was there, they were selling T-shirts broadly to that effect, which I assume they've stopped doing now, and at least hope they've stopped doing now. Uh, Tessa, you, you have been visiting centralish rather than Easternish Europe. Yeah, and especially no racist uh, compounds because uh, we just had a family holiday over <laughs> the winter break and brought three generations of us together and um, where, tried to take it easy for a while. Where do three generations of Siskovitches get together? Well, we get together in Vienna, in the family house in the south of Vienna. And they come from New York and from London and from all sorts of other places, but also Vienna mostly. Uh, That does sound altogether more relaxed, and you both had the advantage of it taking less than, God, however long that took. 
time does start to lose all meaning on that flight. You reach that stage of thinking, I'm just going to stare out the window for the next few hours. I did actually get to that stage. Um, We will be returning to our panel shortly, but first we are going to Switzerland, specifically Davos, from where I am joined by Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, who is apparently in a child's bedroom. Hello, Andrew, and welcome back. And yes, you've given the game away. I've been talking all week about this fantastic podcast booth that we have on the promenade. And it's completely true. It's this beautiful wooden chalet, which overlooks the Congress Centre. We've seen Zelensky, Macron, all the comings and goings. However, we haven't told you the truth, that we are in a small child's bedroom. And it must be a small child because the toilet is tiny. And we've completely soiled it. I mean, not the toilet, the room. (laughs) The room has been destroyed by our muddy boots. It's a stained carpet, broken curtains. I hope they're well compensated because this room is no longer livable. Well, it does serve them right for renting their space out to the notorious hellraisers of the Monocle Radio wrecking crew. Um, I assume, Tom, that the small child is not actually still in there, unless, of course, it's a very small child and you just haven't noticed it. There is a cupboard that we haven't looked in. We, 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 we know it's a small child because hanging above the high-level conversations that we've had with mayors, billionaires, CEOs, is a dinosaur lamp. And I don't know how obvious it is, but to me, it just screams out. It's been very embarrassing. Are you sure they're dinosaurs? Because we were looking at the photos you sent earlier and there was some dispute at the radio table as to what manner of creature they were. I put it to you, Tom, that some of those are in fact foxes. I think it it spells the evolution of animals. I think it starts with the animals that we know. And as you go around the lamp, it goes down to to dinosaurs and then cells. I I haven't given it much thought. Educational and decorative. Um, It says here that I should also ask you, Tom, about the driving of Christie possibly better known to Monocle Radio listeners as one of the superstar producers of The Foreign Desk. Now, I have been driven by Christie most recently to visit the president of Iceland in Reykjavik, and I I have to say I had no meaningful complaints. Right, I've got a good and a bad, so let's start with the bad. We're staying in a mountain called Malix, which is a two-hour drive from Davos, which means Carlotta Rabello, who's also with us, has been making us scrambled eggs at six in the morning and dinner at 11 o'clock at night. But within that time, Christy has been driving us up and down the mountain. And because the days are so long, we've been encouraging her to drive faster, which is very stupid on (laughs) icy roads. However, finally last night, she did get her first speeding ticket. And because it is so way over the limit, she may actually be looking at some jail time here in Switzerland. Um, In case she gets away with it, I'm not going to tell you how fast she was driving. However, on the flip side, she is a very good driver in the snow because on the first day, we went around the other side of the mountain to try to get to Davos. And we hit what had just been an avalanche and Christy spotted it so quickly. She slammed on her brakes, emergency stop. But in all the drama, she got so hot and bothered, she had to get outside of the car in the dark to take off her thermals, which means if another avalanche happened, she would have been frozen in time with her trousers at her ankles. And the anthropologists of the future would have been most puzzled by the scene that we left there. Um, the risks we run while attempting to cover these global wingdings gathering those who furtively manipulate human destiny. Uh, Tom, uh, just on that subject, are there more actual journalism-related things coming up for you and the team? 
Yes, <laughs> yes, he says, suddenly panicking. Yeah, we do. We have the mayor of Dallas. We also have the organizer of Swiss House tomorrow, if you tune into the daily. We also have the head of the bank, the National Bank in Portugal, that uh, Carlotta is going to interview on the briefing live, 12 o'clock UK time tomorrow. Please don't miss it. It's going to be a very good programme. Tom Webb in Davos, thank you very much for joining us. We will now bring tonight's daily panel back in and look at the Middle East, where the ripples caused by Israel's onslaught upon Gaza are continuing to spread. Though proceedings have not, at least not yet, degenerated into the bench-clearing regional ruckus grimly predicted in some circles, there does seem to be a dynamic developing, arraying the wider Western world against what is becoming bracketed as the three H's, Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis, even if the organisations have little in common beyond a dislike of Israel and ties of varying strength and length to Iran. Um, James, first of all, Is it actually helpful to think of Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis as any kind of axis? And in fact, would we indeed be doing it if they didn't all start with H? Um, well, I think we probably would in the in the current context. Of course, you know, before the October the seventh, you wouldn't necessarily have grouped them together in the same way. But you're right; there is a connection there with Iran. I would suggest there's another um, connection to the extent that um, they are all parties to what. Uh, some of the outside powers are trying to keep a lid on and prevent a regional conflict uh, spreading even further, but which, um, with limited success, it has to be said so far. I mean, I think I see, you know, despite the fact that presumably um, if Israel, Iran uh, or Israel with the United States backing had wanted full-on confrontation between each other, that would probably have happened by now. But it's not to say with all the tensions in the regions that that could not still happen, even if the major outside powers don't specifically want to seek that sort of confrontation. So I think we're in a very, very dangerous situation not least because there is no real end in sight in Gaza. The Israeli army keeps saying, well, we've finished operations here or we're scaling back operations there. But they're not putting a limit uh, on on, on the time that they're likely to be in the territory or indeed giving any sense of what their ultimate strategic goal there is. Um, Tessa, the United States uh, this week, as I alluded to at the top of the show, has returned the Houthis to its list of designated terrorist organisations, having previously taken them off it, having previously put them on it. Uh, Is that likely to make any difference to anything? Well, it's certainly um, not helping uh, anyone to calm down if you fuel sort of extremist thoughts on all sides. And what's happening with the Houthis at the moment, of course, is also not very convincing that they say they attack only Israeli ships or ships that are going to Israeli ports. But the the the, the international community is quite clear that it doesn't want to have 12% of global sea trade being now endangered through these attacks. So we are seeing a situation which which is uncomfortable uh, for everyone. And it also points to the fact that the Houthis, like Hamas and Hezbollah, are being financed and being provided with weapons and also with training from all the sort of bad regimes that we have um, sort of uh, heard of in in, in other um in other con- in another context, um, so it we see at the moment that everything you know, like as twenty twenty four is the year of the the fest of the extremists. Uh, we see that Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis are sort of playing their role in fueling this, you know, Iran sponsored um, anti Western 
um, confrontation and uh, and everyone plays their part as always it's always falling into place you know everyone picks up the provocation and hands it back to each other um, James Iran has been in the last week or so especially throwing its weight around even more well obviously than it usually does it does often operate across the Middle East through such proxies and semi-proxies as Hezbollah the Houthis and Hamas but this week Iran has managed to bomb Syria, Iraq and Pakistan. Um, are they? Is the timing of that entirely coincidental? Are they just doing that to show that they can do it and nobody can stop them? Well, that's a very good question to which I don't have a concise answer, I must admit. I mean, I think um, they, you know, they are showing they're flexing their muscles, of course they are, and they're showing they've got influence there. And we've seen the foreign minister saying today as well that, you know, if, if the fighting in Gaza stops, then the attacks um, on shipping will stop too. So again, reflecting there the influence that they that they say they have. Um, but I think, you know, that, that it is true as well, though. I mean, I was talking to somebody recently returned from Lebanon who was saying that on the Lebanese-Israeli border, for example, Nearly all the fighting that's going there is hitting military targets. There seems to be a concerted effort on both sides not to try to let that conflict spread beyond that, which obviously, um, if either side were looking for a reason to have a full-scale war between Israel and Hezbollah, they've had adequate premise for that since October the 7th and yet they've decided not to and presumably uh, Iran is also you know content encouraging that course of action they don't want things to spiral out of control but at the same time they presumably see an opportunity to increase tension decrease tension where they want and as you say to to show that the influence which they do in, believe they enjoy Andrew, if I may just pick up this point of James James's there was a very good um piece in Le Figaro done uh, on the Hamas sort of uh, background research on who they informed when about October 7th. And Khaled Mashal, who resides now in uh, Qatar and who was till 2017, so deputy head of the Politburo of, uh, of Hamas, he was saying that they tried to get Iran uh, on for a full-scale attack of through Hezbollah on October 7th. And Tehran was sort of really not convinced that they needed a full-out uh, war with Israel. Now, you can always say, like, okay, so this is one man saying that, and what influence does he has, and is this true? But it, as we see, as you say rightly, that there is no big appetite, it seems, for a complete confrontation. And and Iran is always playing this quite elegantly uh, over its proxy armies uh, to, to to put heat on, on a conflict without actually getting involved involved in a full-scale uh, war. Let's just hope that it stays like this. Well, let's look now at the European Union, the citizens of which will be voting for a new EU parliament in June. One national electorate from which we will be hearing, or at least from as much of it as can be bothered to vote, is Hungary, and it would appear that EU panjandrums have begun rolling their eyes in advance. Vera Jourova, the EU Commissioner rather for Transparency and Values, has told a newspaper in her native Czech Republic that she and Brussels generally failed to persuade Hungary's government in the direction of democracy and that this, it is unclear whether the irony was lost on her, was due to Hungary's voters who keep returning to office the obdurate EU beta Viktor Orban. Um, Tessa, first of all, as a represent, the only representative at this table of a country still a member of the EU, um, what do you make of these remarks? Because this is going to play massively into 
Orban's narrative, isn't it, that I am standing up to the big EU bullies who keep trying to tell Hungarians how they should live? Well, it's quite tricky. First of all, Vera Jourova is quite a good commissioner of the European Union. She's Czech herself. And she has pushed through a few very, very painful initiatives for uh, Viktor Orban and all those people who would like to um, suppress free press and mm -hmm. freedom of press. For example, the uh, Media Freedom Act that she has that it has been already um, approved in December now and has go has to go through a few more official um, approvals in the in the European Parliament. But then will be will mean that journalists might be slightly better protected from the sorts of Viktor Orban. But Orban, of course, whatever Vera Jourova says or not says, Viktor Orban is the big threat to European Union functioning this year. And for various, various uh, reasons. So one, of course, as uh, is also be being discussed in the UK, because it is sort of uh, not only EU-related, is the financial aid for the Ukraine. Uh, Hungary has blocked it, but Hungary, Hungary will de-block it. And that's what I used to say always, is that Hungary is talking really big. It's really complicated to get uh, Viktor Orban under control because he has also been re-elected with a big mm -hmm. margin last year. But in the end, he gives in. And the European Union, till now, the other uh, heads of states have managed to keep him under control. So the financial aid, the 50 billion euros that he has blocked, that Orban has blocked in December for the Ukraine, will go through. They're finding ways right now. The compromises are being um, worked out. And so on the 1st of February, it will probably there will be a solution for that. And in in various other matters too. So Viktor Orban will not go away, but I would caution that all the ideas that, that Vera Jourova is uh, putting forward and all the other commissioners and every in the parliament and the council uh, are there to be actually a little bit stronger than Viktor Orban himself. And he has shown that he sometimes just makes threats that he doesn't keep because we also have started accession talks with the Ukraine now, uh, officially at least. Uh, and he was adamant that he would block it. So let's see what happens in 2024. Um, James, as Tessa correctly points out, Orban is not going away anytime soon, at least. But is it too much to hope that he might be compelled to calm down somewhat? Because for most of his time in office, he's been afforded an amount of cover by the fact of a broadly similar government uh, next door in Poland, uh, which is obviously is a huge uh, strategically and economically important country, which the EU kind of has to take uh, a lot more seriously seriously than it needs to Hungary. Um, is, is he a bit more isolated uh, now that the Law and Justice Party in Poland have been tipped out of office? Well, I think to an extent he is, but not entirely. Also to the extent, you know, as Tess has been pointing out, he does still have the power um, mm -hmm. to block, you know, major EU initiatives, albeit, you know, I, I find Tessa's arguments very persuasive. I, it, this is hard to see this continuing for good. But for the time being, one would imagine, you know, with his successful election last year, his having shored up his own constituency, his need to uh, strike these sort of poses will be reduced. But you're right. I mean, he doesn't have the friends that he did once have. You know, for how many years have we talked about Poland and Hungary as being in that same uh, bracket where mm -hmm. they were cracking down on the independent judiciary, cracking down on the media, on academic freedom and so on. Um, so yes, it, to that extent, he is isolated. But of course, because of the way the European Union does work, he does retain a degree of influence, which, as we've seen from uh, Ms. Jourova's 
frustrations here is still something which he's able to use. Um, Tessa, the likes of Viktor Orban and various EU baiters across the EU and indeed here in the former EU enjoy depicting the European Union as this essentially insufferably elitist metropolitan liberal project, which is frankly not an altogether inaccurate characterisation of the EU. But the EU can be flexible, can it not, in dealing with nationalist conservative governments, because it's had to be flexible in dealing with one in Italy, which again is a country far too large and powerful uh, to be dismissed or ignored. Well, I mean, tomorrow, for example, the EU Parliament uh, wants to put through a resolution that, to the effect that it could strip Hungary of its voting rights under artic- Article 7 of the EU tr- treaty, which is sort of possible if it's a very special um, uh, circumstance, if a country really harms EU interests. So I don't think that this will necessarily happen. But mm. it's a sign how how the nerves are at now already strained. And we have uh, EU elections in June from the 6th to the 9th. And the problem is that, as you say, we have Italy on the one side, which... You know, Giorgia Meloni and the Fratelli Italia are not behaving as badly in European Union politics terms as people had expected. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they're behaving good or well. And we have now in these elections, we will see that quite a few of these far right and populist right wing parties will become stronger while the center will become weaker. I mean, we can all, we as EU citizens can do something against it, go and vote at the European <laughs> Union elections. But it, of course, will be very, very difficult. We are not in a good trend at the moment concerning AfD in Germany is mm-hmm. getting stronger. You have all sorts of things going on with Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands and the Scandinavian countries uh, are not doing so well either on, on this side. The Austrians are about to uh, elect the far right again to parliament and maybe also in the EU parliament they will become stronger. So we'll have to see how the parliament and also the commission and the EU council can deal with this. And uh, as you say, you we have a tradition to contain the bad boys and girls, <laughs> but it's uh, it's a it's a tough year for this. Huh? Well, somewhere else where it's going to be a tough year for this is the United States and the early skirmishes of this election year, about which there is good news and bad news. The good news is that the next Republican candidates' debate due tomorrow in New Hampshire has been cancelled, which reduces by a few hours the quantity of inane bad faith blathering which will be broadcast in 2024. The bad news is is the reason, i.e. the accelerating certainty that former President Donald Trump already has the Republican nomination in the bag. Nikki Haley, also seeking the nomination, announced she wouldn't participate in the debate against Trump was, and he won't, and ABC News didn't fancy broadcasting a solo show by Ron DeSantis. Um, James, is the cancellation of this Republican debate a tremendous loss to the discourse? I think it is a loss for discourse, Andrew, yes, and for the reason that um, the candidates here are able completely to set the agenda. I mean, Trump has been very, very smart about this throughout his political career. If you remember back in the 2016 election, as far back as that, he refused to take part in quite a lot of debates. He, um, you know, instead, rather than going to the studio, would sort of miraculously just phone up in the middle of the programme on a couple of occasions, get put on air, thereby drawing all the attention to himself, 
obviously with his background, you know, of working in TV, he's very, very smart about the way that the medium works. Um, and but I think you know this to not to turn up for something like this treats the the TV audience and the and the electorate ultimately with contempt. But there's not really much that people can do about it. You remember in this country, Boris Johnson was was fought shy of um, of doing political interviews when he was ahead of the, his election in 2019. Uh, Channel Four, famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, uh, put a, an ice statue in the in the studio to represent where he would have been, and that um, didn't really curry favour with their subsequent access to his administration in Downing Street, either in media terms. But I do think it's loss. Um, although, as you say, I think it's a loss in principle, whether in practice we're actually missing much is another matter. Uh, the, the difficulty, of course, being tested that for the likes of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson or any other politician who has... Uh, accrued a genuine cult following, uh, it doesn't make any difference whether they turn up at these things or not, just as it doesn't make any difference whether they do pretty much anything uh, or not. But if we look at Nikki Haley's decision to announce, I'm not doing this debate if Donald Trump isn't coming, does that make any sense from her point of view? Doesn't she basically need all the coverage she can possibly get? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think she would have better gone to these debates just because if you are trying to win uh, in the opinion polls, if you try to win over the hearts and minds of the voters, you better do whatever you can. And ABC is sort of also, you know, these big American networks, that's where possible voters are to be had also. The problem with the Trump uh, voters is they are totally convinced of their men. So they don't want to listen to anyone else. But there is a lot of uh, voters in between, the Trump voters and uh, the ones that are sort of basically the larger part of um, the more, how to say that now uh, properly, the more normal Republican states <laughs> where there is not only Trump supporters. But, you know, it's also for Trump, he's sitting on a different agenda. He has his own public. He has his own social networks. For him, these sort of the classic American TV networks are almost enemy territory by now. And it's quite interesting because his social media uh, world and empire doesn't work so well also so i hope that we that we will see that it's also that we are it's so easy to believe that he can do it without the normal television stations because if you look at this um truth uh, social uh, thing the trump media and technology group has lost uh, 30 million dollars in the last two years. So it's not actually a very successful thing. So we might see, and also this Twitter thing, we don't know how X will perform and how his his uh, his um, presence there might change something. I, I think we are up also for some uh, surprises maybe in this respect. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see if Trump's own solid constituency is going to be enough to get him over the line because after all, you know, lots of elections like this are won in the centre ground and, he's, and he needs to win that. Um, so I think it is going to be very interesting to see how it progresses. I note too that although this isn't borne out in the opinion polls that have been taken in all the swing states mm. um, that the Democrats reportedly believe they've got uh, a good chance of winning against Trump and some of them, you know, saying privately they would actually quite like to see him as the Republican candidate because 
they believe that gives them the, the best chance of winning. Although, as I say, not necessarily a point of view that's borne out in recent polling in the swing states. But, yeah, and in fairness, uh, James, he did win the Iowa caucuses by a street. Uh, he did indeed. Yeah. So that may just be the Democrats trying to put some sort of gloss yeah. on reality. But re- returning to the theme of things that it may or may na- not make sense for Nikki Haley to do, mm. uh, we saw her this week fairly abjectly pandering to the, the MAGA base uh, with that bizarre statement that the US has never been a racist country. Now, even speaking as I am an admirer of the United States in very many respects, that is a flatly absurd thing to suggest um, in more more ways than we have time here to, mm. to list. But is that going to impress anybody? Does someone like her, if you're basically trying to position yourself as the non-insane Republican candidate, does trying to peel off any of Trump's supporters get you anywhere, or should you just go, you know, basically full throttle on the I'm relatively normal and I operate within, you know, verifiable reality vote for me? Yeah, well, I mean, I actually would have thought the latter, Andrew, but, I mean, I suppose... Uh Haley's calculations are that she does need to get part of that vote, that constituency, that part of the electorate, if she's going to have a chance of getting the nomination. But um, clearly, you know, to come back to the point about general election, those sort of remarks are not likely to win you any undecided centrist voters. Well, here in the United Kingdom, it is a perennial hazard of the Westminster system of government that the hapless MP may find themselves awarded a ministerial portfolio in an area in which they are any or all of unsuited, unqualified or uninterested. Your sympathy is therefore solicited for British Conservative MP Andrew Griffith, who, while being interviewed during a visit to London Science Museum, and he is the minister with responsibility for space, confused Jupiter with Saturn and Mars with the Sun. Mortifyingly for Griffith, if amusingly for the rest of us, the Daily Mail, preferred journal of the Tory party's membership of mad retired colonels, subsequently ran a quiz about the solar system headlined, Are You Smarter Than Our Space Minister? Um, Tessa, how good are you on the planets? Could you tell Jupiter from... I mean, Jupiter and Saturn's an easy one. Saturn's got the rings, Jupiter's got the big red spot. This is is pretty elementary. Yeah, but I have to say uh, it's very easy always to make fun of uh, other people. That's who why fail we're, that's why we're doing be, it, Tessa. I know, but I would be a disastrous space minister because I'm really bad at these planet things. But I have to say, you know, Don't as a minister... That, the job might come up soon. They might, yeah, exactly. If they have, they have, not probably. They wouldn't bring in the Austrians for that one, I think. And I would say Brexit was a mistake in every time when I am as a space minister being asked if this is Jupiter or Saturn. But um, I actually uh, did a little bit of research and found a website for Andrew Griffith. Uh, it's on the uh, the British Council has English um, um, courses and on level two they explain the solar system. And so uh, I, I, if he listens to us, uh, Mr. Griffith, maybe have a look at that because it clearly explains what the big ones and the small ones, the one with the rings, the one with the thing and this and uh, James, do we at least uh, concede uh, Mr Griffith some kudos for his response, I'm not an encyclopedia? I, I quite liked it. It reminded me of a phrase which uh, passed into the Australian lexicon, I think, from our last general election, where uh, Adam Bant, who is a Green MP representing Melbourne, was confronted with some gotcha question by a journalist trying to do that thing of wrong-footing mm. someone by seeking a precise figure or something and replied to him, just Google it, mate. Yeah, I mean, I think the encyclopedia line um, 
makes me hark back to an age in which people did consult proper sources instead mm. of just Googling it, mate, actually, to find stuff out. I have to say I have limited sympathy for Mr Griffith <laughs> on it. But you're right, it is an absolute failure of our system that people are rewarded for political loyalty. I, um, my own research involved looking at uh, Mr Griffith's own website, which, you know... Details his very successful career in business, 27 years in business before he became um, a member of parliament. But, you know, if you're not, if you don't, not really that interested in the job, and I would imagine, uh, I think Mr Griffith is in his 50s, born in 1971, if I recall correctly. So if he really, 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 really were that interested in space, he'd probably have found something out about it now. And if he's not really that interested, he probably shouldn't be doing the job. I mean, Tessa, this does sound uh, perhaps more seriously like either laziness or disorganisation on the part of the minister or his staff, because it it's, should be an easy one to envisage if you are the minister for space and you're going to a science museum, you should be able to plan ahead to the possibility that, you know, somebody's going to mention the planets. Yeah, but look at the government, you know, what can I tell you, you know, after all these years now of failed government policies, the fact that we have a space minister who doesn't know his apples and his pears <laughs> in the planet system, you know, by the way, what's the coldest boys the coldest planet uh i i know this because it, it came up in the actually or did the coldest this no we talked about the hottest one in the office earlier and it's not necessarily the one you expect apparently the coldest one i'm going it's the one furthest going away. with i'm going i'm going with the counterintuitive answer which is mercury no mercury is the smallest but neptune is the coldest that's is, what i is I mercury read. not the coldest because the bit of it that faces directly away from the sun at any given yeah, moment yeah, is you're not getting it mixed up with jupiter or saturn no, no. That's no. What I was, neptune <laughs> is the coldest and venus is the hottest planet yeah again that is the counter i see i wasn't expecting that uh, this this came up in the office earlier. Uh, I did just finally, while we have you here, and given that this is a table full of journalists, are we all going to sit here and solemnly swear that we have never once in our life been caught out professing knowledge that we did not in fact possess? Look, I can't. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't what? Think, you no. don't? I don't think I've ever been caught out talking about stuff I don't know about. You, 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 I've, I've, you've I've, never... In doing live hour. interviews, I've occasionally uh, answered a different <laughs> question from the one that's put to me. Uh, but that, that's a sort of legitimate technique in live broadcasting, you, you, I think. Then we, we are all clearly extremely successful and able bluffers. Uh, Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, our On This Day historical series recalls one of the more surprising utterances ever made by a President of the United States. The phrase military-industrial complex is one of those terms which has been rendered more or less meaningless through repetition by people who don't really understand it, or indeed pretty much anything else. Military-industrial complex has become a beloved bark of those who interpret the world via the woeful misapprehension that human events are furtively orchestrated by nefarious manipulators, often with a view to laughing all the way to the bank as the lower orders are consumed by tumult and conflict. The point being that military-industrial complex has become one of those phrases like mainstream media or woke, which serves as a sort of klaxon, alerting you to the fact that you can safely stop listening to whoever is bleating at you about whatever it is. 
However, when the person uttering the phrase is, as they were on January 17, 1961, the outgoing two-term President of the United States and a former five-star general, it's probably worth tuning in. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. On January 17, 1961, Dwight Eisenhower was calling time on an extraordinary career in his nation's service. During World War II, he had commanded Allied forces in North Africa, overseen the Allied invasion of Italy, and been the chief architect of Operation Overlord, the dramatic storming of the beaches of Normandy that marked the beginning of the end of Nazi Germany. He'd been governor of the US-occupied zone of defeated Germany, returned home to become chief of staff of the US Army, then been appointed the first supreme allied commander of NATO. The capable soldier had been a reluctant politician. In 1946, Eisenhower dismissed rumours of a presidential run by scoffing that no elected office would tempt him from, as he put it, dog catcher to grand high supreme king of the universe. However, belief in Eisenhower's unsuitability for the White House was a minority position in post-war America. Both the Democrats and the Republicans sounded him out. He preferred the latter but everybody liked Ike. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. You like Ike, I like Ike. In 1952, Eisenhower won the presidency in a 39 states to 9 landslide clobbering of Democratic nominee Adlai Stevenson. In 1956, the Democrats nominated Stevenson again, and Eisenhower beat him even more soundly. In a time of stress, a great soldier and statesman again receives the vote of confidence of his nation. As president, Eisenhower was a solid, stolid, steady-as-she-goes sort of conservative. Upsides signed major civil rights legislation, forced through the racial desegregation of the US military, oversaw the founding of NASA, managed to call the Korean War kind of a draw, worked to reduce tensions with the Soviet Union following the death of Stalin in 1953. Downsides could probably have reined in the CIA's foreign meddling, spoken up more on questions of racial justice, come down harder earlier on demented anti-communist grandstander and fellow Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, and played less golf. But like few presidents before or since, Eisenhower had been no more or less than he had promised to be when elected. That he was thoughtful and conscientious, nobody doubted, and if not quite everybody still liked Ike by the time he left office, he still enjoyed approval ratings circa 60% and the lowest disapproval ratings of any post-war US president on leaving office. Which made the portentous tone of his farewell even more startling. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. 
In more recent years especially, Eisenhower's warning about the military-industrial complex has been seized upon by the conspiracy theory social media complex as proof of their manias. Who would know if not an outgoing two-term president of the United States and former five-star general? Willfully or not, these seething foil hatters miss two key points. One is this. Whether sought or unsought, Eisenhower had learned the hard way that human events have a tendency to acquire a detrimental momentum of their own. Not everything that happens happens because somebody, or indeed anybody, wanted it to. The other is this. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. An alert and knowledgeable citizenry. Tens of millions of whom, 63 years later, want four more years of this guy. This is your favorite president, Donald J. Trump, with some very exciting news. My last two Trump digital trading card collections sold out in just hours. And now I'm back with my latest series called the Mugshot Edition. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, James Rogers and Tessa Shishkovitz, also to Tom Webb in Davos at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.